Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. It's lovely to see you all here, so many people all together, worshipping God together, getting to know God better, getting to know each other better. Our first reading is from Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by God, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And our second reading today is from Leviticus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord... Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them, And burn them on the altar. 
This is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Do you remember this time last year? Think back 12 months ago if you were here with us. We were, we'd just come back for a few weeks, meeting together in person after an extended lockdown. And I reckon things felt pretty positive back then. We were beating COVID. Victoria was still struggling, but the rest of us were doing pretty good. We didn't have to wear masks back then. We had more and more freedoms. JobKeeper was still around for most businesses as a safety net. And the way out of COVID, it seemed pretty clear, pretty simple back then. But 12 months later, it doesn't feel that simple, does it? New South Wales had the worst day of COVID ever last um, uh, yesterday. Sorry, the slides aren't working. Do you think you could probably just try the USB for me, pull it out and put it back in? That'd be good. So yesterday, 466 cases in New South Wales, even though they're in full-on lockdown, still that's happening and getting worse. Apparently, even the army is involved in helping to enforce restrictions. And yet, they're worse off now than they were 12 months ago. And sadly, it's not just New South Wales that's in trouble. It's Queensland, it's Victoria, now it's Canberra. And the way our leaders are talking here, it sounds like they actually think South Australia is going to have another issue yet again. And the really frustrating thing is that there's not a clear, simple solution If we beat this current outbreak that's happening, it seems like we're not out of the woods just yet. Things could go wrong again. Don't you reckon it would be such a relief if someone could just come up with a a simple solution, a, a simple roadmap out of this pandemic that actually worked and it would all just go away? But I think we've all come to recognize that that's that's not gonna happen. It's not going to be that simple. We were hoping vaccination would be the silver bullet, but now it looks like it's going to be more complicated than that. It looks like the roadmap out of COVID is going to be very messy and very costly. I think many people are starting to wonder, can this problem of COVID even be resolved? And I think some people are starting to wonder, do we have the resolve that's needed to resolve this and we feel these questions on a national level you know from the the politicians who daily front up to the media right down to the casual worker who who can't even front up to work and isn't going to get paid that week and we feel the weight differently at different times suddenly when there's a new pandemic you know a new outbreak here in South Australia we really feel it all of a sudden but on a national level To some degree, all of us feel the longing for these questions to be answered. Now, just 
channel that longing for a second, for a solution, that feeling. Hold it in your, in your heart and your mind. Because it gives you a taste of what's going on in this ancient and weird book of Leviticus that we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. That dual question, you know, can COVID be resolved? And if it can, do we have the resolved to do what needs to be done, no matter what the cost? That's what the people of God were feeling on a national level just before God gave them the book of Leviticus. But their questions, they they weren't around something like COVID. Their question was, how can God live among us? What's it going to take for a holy God to live with us? And Leviticus is like a roadmap that answers that question. Not a, a simple roadmap. It's quite a complex roadmap. But still, it's a careful answer to this important question. Now, let me explain why this was such a burning question for them. In the book of Exodus, which is just before Leviticus, God sees the suffering of his people. They were slaves in Egypt in, in around 1400 BC. And so God appears to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And look at what God says to him in verse 8. We'll bring it up on the screen. He says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a a good and spacious land. God had come down. He'd come down to rescue his people and, and to bring them to their own land, a new land. And then across the book of Exodus, that's what we see. God brings Pharaoh and he brings Egypt to their knees so that finally broken... They set his people free. And so God takes his people to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them, like a contract, but more personal. God promises to be their God. He promises to live with them. And they promise to be his covenant people, faithful to him as king, living in peace and justice with each other and representing him to all the world. So half of Exodus is this amazing story of of God coming down and bringing Egypt to its knees and bringing his people to Mount Sinai. And the second half is all about the things that God's people were to do as his covenant people. And that included building a mobile palace, a, a tent, what we often call a tabernacle. And this would be a tent where God would live as their king, literally in the middle of their camp, and they would be encamped around him. And that's where the book of Exodus ends. God comes down to live among his people in this tent. And Exodus ends, and it all sounds, you know, wonderful. God is there. He's come down. But there's a problem, and we get a taste of it right near the end of Exodus, just before Leviticus starts. Have a look at the end of Exodus in verse 35. We read... Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The problem is that God is too glorious. He's too holy and perfect and his people are not. They can't bear to be in his presence. Now we saw this earlier in Exodus, the problem with God's people 
At one point earlier on in Exodus, when Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, he's gone for 40 days. And in just that short time, God's people decide that they're going to give up on God and they build for themselves an idol, a golden calf, and they gave it the glory for saving them from Egypt. So this is their problem. How can God, who alone is glorious and perfect and who always does what's good, how can he live amongst people who are not like him? Even if they're, they're doing their best and being relatively good people and, and not building any golden calves that day, even still, how can a pure God live, a, live alongside impure people? That's their burning question. And Leviticus is like a roadmap out of this problem. Leviticus is like a whole-of-life reminder of how they can effectively honour God as, as their king in all his glory and how their sin and impurity can be dealt with and so how they can live in a close relationship with God. That's what we're going to see over these next five weeks. And it's exactly what we see today as we look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. So let's get into it. Leviticus starts in Leviticus 1 verse 1 with God calling out to Moses from, the, from his palace, this tent palace. But notice at this stage that Moses, he can't come inside. He has to stay on the outside. And the first thing that, that God outlines in his roadmap is animal offerings. In fact, these first seven chapters, that's what they're all about. They're all about these offerings. And it's quite a confronting start because many of us here have never even killed an animal, let alone offered it as a sacrifice. But we need to keep in mind as we read this book, and we'll need to keep reminding ourselves of this, that this is God, first of all, speaking into their world. This is God revealing his character to them using practices and concepts that they'll understand. And three and a half thousand years later, we aren't going to automatically understand these practices and these concepts. But here's the thing. God doesn't just endorse their practices and concepts. He bends them to his purpose. He uses them to teach something about himself and how they were to relate to him. So sometimes they would have found this, this book perfectly natural, but at other times they too would have found it really weird. And for us, what this means is we need to work harder than they would have had to work to understand the details of what's going on. But like them, we also need to go beyond the surface details to understand what God is teaching us by them. So let's do that now together. So did you notice the first thing that they need to get right in this roadmap? The first and clear thing that God says is that he must be acknowledged as their true king. God must be acknowledged as their true king. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. God says, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. They weren't to just bring anything, you know, a wild animal that they caught. 
something dead that they found, roadkill or something like that. They were to bring something that was of value. And what was of value to them back then were the animals in their herds and flocks. And on top of this, look at verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. They weren't even to offer any old animal from their flock. They weren't to grab the kind of half-dead, sickly, scabby animal that they'd been hoping to offload for a while. What kind of king would be happy with that kind of offering? Not a king worth honouring. Not a king worth anything. And it's the same with with all the other types of offerings and even the grain offering. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. All the offerings, they say the same thing. In God's roadmap for, for living with his people, the first thing that they must recognize is the extreme value of God, their king. They must take to heart the extreme honor that's due to him. Now let me just clarify two things for us at this point. Is God being the typical leader who lines his pockets while his people suffers? Well, it's not like that at all. Because although this system it was supposed to be costly, God doesn't intend it to be an unrealistic burden. You see this because God makes allowances for the poor, those who couldn't afford it. Have a look at Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, where God says to them, Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord. And if they can't even afford that, look at verse 11. They are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour. See, God's not trying to extract all that he can get. Everything, everywhere already belongs to the Lord anyway. What he's doing is making a way for every one of his people to be involved in this whether they're rich or poor, whether they're a leader or just an everyday person, they all stood on the same footing when it came to their standing before God. And here's the thing, God's not doing this for his benefit. What he's doing is ultimately for their benefit. God doesn't need them to provide him offerings, but they, for their own good, they needed to acknowledge his infinite value, the infinite value of God who was their true king. Now this brings us to the second thing that's, that's worth clarifying. Is God here being the typical leader who's fallen in love with his own sense of greatness? You know, human nature, and especially Australian nature, tends to revolt at this idea. We hate the idea of, of some, someone who tells other people how they should acknowledge their importance. But this resistance with us that we even feel towards God, it's exactly why we need this lesson in this roadmap. I remember going to court once to support a 12-year-old who'd had a rough background and had actually done something terrible. And I was there to support him. But it was my first time in court. And I found it confronting, you know, having to stand and bow at the judge and carry on like that. I did what was required of me, but I found within myself this feeling of of wanting to resist. But think about why we have all that stuff, why we have all that bowing and standing and your honour and all that. 
It's because we're signaling that the court should be held in honor and not treated with contempt. And if we start on the path of treating the court with contempt, if we tolerate that in our society, what would happen to us? Not good things, bad things, destructive things. It's for our own good that we've got those small little things that remind us that the court should be shown proper respect. Now, if that's true for an imperfect human system like courts, how much more true is it for the perfect personal God of the universe? He wouldn't be doing us any favours if he said to us, yeah, just, just treat me however you like, however you feel like. Honour me if you want or don't. Treat me with contempt if you like, that's fine. That's not fine. That would be God himself joining us in our imperfection. That would be God labelling evil as good. But God is truly good, truly pure, holy. And so when he holds himself up for us to see his value, we benefit from seeing holiness, goodness, purity in him. And the Israelites, they got to live alongside God and see holiness, goodness and purity in him constantly. Now there's a lesson for us here already, isn't there, from this ancient, ancient book. Do we think that God's saying to us, just give me whatever you like, just treat me however you want, I don't mind, I'm easy? Now, don't you reckon that's pretty much the Australian motto when it comes to God? You know, if the census had a box that you could tick under religion that was like that, surely many of us would be ticking that box. But why would God do that to us? Why would he mislead us like that? Well, he doesn't. He says to us clearly, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Bring me your best and that's actually what's best for you. Now, at this point, do you start to feel the weight of the problem that God's people must have felt? On the one hand, it's phenomenal that they get to live alongside God. It's our very purpose in life. And yet, on the other hand, it's daunting. It's hard to imagine that we could ever give God the honour due to him. And that's exactly why the book of Leviticus was for them in their time a roadmap as to how they could give God the honour due to him. But more than that, it was also how they could make things right again when they failed. And that's the second thing that God is telling his people in this roadmap. The the offerings that we're looking at today, they, they, they told them that the cost of sin must be paid. The cost of sin must be paid. Now, pretty much all five types of offerings communicate that the cost of sin must be paid. There's the burnt offering, which was for their individual general sinfulness. And it was also to be offered morning and evening, every single day by the priests for their corporate sinfulness. Then the sin offering and the guilt offering were there for specific wrongdoings that they did. And even the fellowship offering had built within it the idea that the cost of sin needs to be paid. The one possible exception, if you read through the seven chapters, might be the grain offering. But it was always offered along with the other offerings anyway. 
So think about what this part of God's roadmap was saying to them, whether they were rich or poor or a leader or a commoner or even a priest. It says each person's sin really matters and it must be dealt with. Right up in front in this roadmap, that's what it's saying. And it's saying that sin is extremely costly to deal with. Look at what God says in in chapter 1 verse 4 in the directions he gives. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And it's the same in chapter 3 verse 2 and chapter 4 verse 4. It's, It's the same for all the animal sacrifices. Now, imagine actually doing this. Imagine laying your hand on that animal. And so somehow it's taking your place. And then in verse 5, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons and the priest shall, take, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. This is really confronting stuff, isn't it? A number of years ago, I had a, a sick chicken that was um, suffering and it was just getting worse and worse. And so one night, I went outside, sharpened the axe and I chopped its head off. But one of my kids had heard me saying what I, what I needed to do and so they were actually watching out the window as I did it. And even though they, they heard me saying that I was going to be doing it and heard, heard me saying why I was going to be doing it, to be kind, as I came inside, they whacked me and said, "'You're naughty, Dad!' I thought that was a bit unfair. I mean, we ate chicken all the time. You know, Kathy and I would make it, but Kathy never got whacked. But it illustrates just how detached from death we've become. One time when I was with a friend on his farm, we came across one of his sheep that was sick and he said it had been sick for a while. And so with very little warning, he pulls out a blade that I didn't even know he was holding and slits its throat right in front of me. I was a bit traumatised, felt a bit woozy. I'm a city slicker, you've got, to give, you've got to give city slickers a bit more warning than that before you go and do things like that. And it illustrates, like I said, we're detached from death. Now who had meat in their dinner last night? Or if you can't remember, put your hand up if you had meat sometime in the last week. Alright, now keep your hand up, keep your hand up, if you killed that animal yourself. This could be interesting. (laughs) Some conversations happening. Okay, no one genuinely, right? But here's the thing. Actually, you did kill that animal. You just did it by getting someone in an abattoir to do it for you, to do all the messy work for you. Now, believe it or not, I'm not trying to make us all become vegetarians. That's not my point today. What I'm trying to do is to help you see past this this idea of hypocrisy that we're eating more and more meat than ever while at the same time we might be offended by the idea of offering an animal to God. We offer animals to ourselves all the time, almost every meal. So try to see this through their eyes three and a half thousand years ago. Death was for them so, so much more a part of everyday life and offering animals to God, it didn't communicate the same, same things as it might to us today with our modern sentiments. But still, what it communicated to them 
was a very strong and a very confronting message, even for them. The imagery is clear, isn't it? You lay your hand on the animal and you're saying, this stands in my place. Instead of my blood, take this animal's blood so that I can be purified, cleansed of my sin. And then you cut the animal's throat. Now it's confronting for them also, not because an animal dies, but because of what it says about them and their sin. It says that God's not compatible with our sin. It says our sin is actually a serious, serious thing, an evil. We might happily overlook it and excuse it. But God in his wonderful holiness cannot. Sin deserves death and the cost, it's got to be paid. And so he graciously makes a way for a substitute to stand in their place. Now again, do you feel the tension of living alongside God? And again, there's a lesson for us even today from this ancient book, isn't there? Because how seriously do we take sin these days? We're fairly quick to label others who think differently to us as evil, especially on social media. But the label never seems to stick to how we think about ourselves. I was um, flicking channels between Olympic sports the other day and I saw a movie just for a couple of minutes where one character says to his dad, you're the most narcissistic person I've ever met. And the dad says, but that's not how I see myself. The label just doesn't stick. It just didn't stick. And yet it occurred to me, we can be like that. We're not used to thinking of ourselves as, as those who offend God and, and so we downplay sin. Even those of us who've got the kind of personality where we tend to beat ourselves up, thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, even we don't get it. We beat ourselves up because deep down we believe we should be good enough. We could be good enough if we just tried hard enough and we don't actually see the depth of the problem. Now, we live in a different world to them, three and a half thousand years later, but actually, people haven't changed. In this roadmap to living with God, they needed to know that the cost of their sin must be paid, and we need to know this just as much as them. Recently, a, um, a COVID denier broke lockdown in Sydney and, and travelled up the coast of New South Wales to Byron Bay. And also, a, a uni student broke lockdown in Sydney went up to Newcastle and partied with five friends. And then that led to COVID spreading around Newcastle and then spreading from Newcastle to Armadale. And you know what? What they did, it makes me angry. Because their refusal to acknowledge the seriousness of COVID, it ended up leading to some friends of mine not being able to see their father, their dad in hospital, who has a brain, has a brain tumour. You know, my friends... They got exemption to leave Sydney. They quarantined in Armadale for 14 days. And then because some people took COVID lightly, Armadale ended up going into lockdown and they still couldn't see their dad. Treat something serious as trivial and it can be deadly. And this is my point. We tend to be sin deniers 
We naturally treat our own sin lightly. But God's roadmap in Leviticus, it's confronting because it just blows that kind of thinking out of the water completely. And just before we move on, you need to hear today that if you've never taken your sin seriously, if you've never come before God on your knees broken because of your sin, you need to do that as a first priority. The cost of sin must be paid for. And don't miss that it's God himself here in Leviticus who's giving them the way that that cost can be paid for. Death is the only solution, but God graciously provides them with a substitute so that they can be forgiven. And he does the same for us. He does even more for us. He gives his own son, Jesus, for us as our substitute so that we can be forgiven. If you've never accepted Jesus' offer to to take your place, then you need to hear that before this day ends, there's nothing more important that you can do. Nothing in all of your life is more important than this, than to do that. Sin is not to be taken lightly. God wants you to do something about it. And this brings us to our last point that we're looking at today. See, God's purpose in all of these sacrifices is actually fellowship. God's purpose in these offerings is fellowship. See, right in in the middle of this section um, in chapter 3 is this type of offering called the fellowship offering. And the last word in this section as well, 1 to 7, is again about this type of offering. It's an offering that was made as a way of giving thanks to God. And it captures what all of the sacrifices are actually driving towards. They're a roadmap to make it possible for God to live alongside his people in peace. That's fellowship. Look at what chapter 7 verse 12 says about this type of offering. God says, if they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they're to offer thick loaves made without yeast, And with olive oil mixed in. Do you see what this is? Meat and bread. It's a meal. And it's a meal that they share with God. This is the one sacrifice, the only sacrifice where the people get to eat some of the sacrifice too. Just the everyday people. They share a meal with God. And it was a meal we read in this this chapter that was to be eaten that day. A celebration. You know, it wasn't like baked beans or something you'd put in the freezer to save for after a busy day at work. It was meant to be a meal full of purpose and meaning to be savoured, to be enjoyed. In other words, this offering, the fellowship offering, it it captures the goal of, of the whole book of Leviticus. God living in peace with his people, seated with them at their table as their holy good and personal king with them living in peace with him peace with each other as a light to the nations to a light to the rest of the world pointing them the way back to this holy god now we tend to read a book like leviticus and miss this we're rightly struck by the holiness and the, and the greatness of god and we're rightly struck by the seriousness of sin and so we can turn away from leviticus in horror overwhelmed by it all 
And we miss the very fact that Leviticus shows us that God does exactly the opposite. Leviticus shows us that God is resolved not to turn away from his people in horror. Leviticus shows that God is resolved to never turn away from his people in horror, no matter what the cost is to him. It's God giving a roadmap that he's resolved to make a way that our sin can be resolved once and for all. In the end, Leviticus, it's not the road itself. It's just a roadmap. God always intended Leviticus to point to something even greater that was to come. And so John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he sees what Leviticus was always pointing to. And what does he do? He points to him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Leviticus, it shows us just how deep is God's resolve to live with us. And as we appreciate just how deep God's resolve is, we appreciate what Jesus has done. And we appreciate it on a whole new level. Jesus, worthy of every honour we could ever give, he becomes our offering to God. He becomes our substitute before God. He sacrifices himself in our place so that we can live in perfect fellowship with God forever. So in light of what we've already seen in Leviticus today, I want to just finish by leaving you to ask yourself three questions. First of all, are you acknowledging God as your true king? You know, I don't mean are you doing this perfectly, but is your attitude that God really does deserve your best? And second, are you seeing the seriousness of your sin? Or are you actually downplaying it? And finally, do you share God's purpose for your life? That he wants to be in close relationship with you. Is that your purpose? To know this God? Or are you holding out for something better? Because it just won't come. Let me pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. You truly are glorious, holy, more marvellous than we can ever imagine. And Lord, we are aware of, of just how finite we are, just how fallen, broken, sinful, that we would look at your goodness and often despise you, ignore you, turn away from you. And yet, Lord, your goodness is only more elevated in our minds when we see the levels that you go to, to stoop down in Jesus to go to the depths of the cross in our place, to die in agony, that Jesus would do that for us so that, Father, we could be restored to you. We could be close to you for all eternity. Father, our hearts and our minds and our whole lives can't distill just how amazing your love and mercy is, even though we get a taste of it. Lord, we pray that you would ever increase our love and appreciation of you as we see your holiness and your mercy come together in Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour and our friend. And we pray in his name. Amen.